Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to have a week of convocation where we reflect on our prophetic identity and of the right arm of the third angel's message that you have entrusted to us as a people. And I pray that you would speak through me and each presenter this week and that you would allow this week to stir our hearts to make changes where change is needed and to follow you completely and to be ready for your soon coming. So we thank you for this opportunity um, to come together this morning, and I pray that these next few moments will prove to be a blessing. So I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have been asked to give the presentations for the morning 8 o'clock meeting as well as the evening meeting. So I'm going to do two different series, I guess you would say. So in the morning, what I'm going to be doing is going through the book of Revelation, and we are going to progress through the sanctuary as seen in the book of Revelation, and we will see how that connects to the medical missionary work. So that's what we're going to be doing in the morning meetings. Now, today's presentation is going to be an overview of where we are headed the rest of the week, so I probably won't spend as much time this morning on medical missionary topics. It will be more of a prophetic overview of the book of Revelation, uh, but we will get into the medical missionary side of things, especially tomorrow and, and Wednesday. So that's where we're headed. So the title for this presentation is Revelation's Sanctuary Theme, and I just have a couple of statements about why we study prophecy. You know, sometimes Adventists have a tendency to say, you know, we've already studied all the prophecies, let's just talk about Jesus. Well, I would submit to you, as you're going to see through this series of meetings, that when you study prophecy correctly, you'll see Jesus even better. Now, Testimonies to Ministers, page 116, those who eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of God will bring from the books of Daniel and Revelation truth that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. They will start into action forces that cannot be repressed. So if we're spending time with Jesus, eating his flesh, drinking his blood, we will bring from the books of Daniel and Revelation truth that is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and this will start into action forces that cannot be repressed. That is going to lead to the final movements of this earth's history. Continuing on, Great Controversy 423, the subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the mystery of the disappointment of 1844. It opened to view a complete system of truth, connected and harmonious. Friends, God has blessed this church with a complete system of truth. Now, I'll just say what I'm thinking here. I get concerned when I hear people going to non-Adventist sources to gain a more complete understanding of Bible truth. God has given to us a complete system of truth. 
Now, I'm not saying that you couldn't get some devotional value out of a source outside of our church, but I'm saying if you're trying to add a deeper understanding to the truth that God has given to us, you're going to find it in the truth that God has given to us. Continuing, uh, this is one of my favorite statements about the sanctuary. Testimonies, Volume 5, page 575. The great plan of redemption, as revealed in the closing work of these last days, should receive close examination. Friends, we need to be giving close examination to the great plan of redemption as it is connected to our last day message. Continuing, the scenes connected with the sanctuary above should make such an impression upon the minds and hearts of all that they may be able to impress others. All, how many? All need to become more intelligent in regard to the work of the atonement which is going on in the sanctuary above. So one thing that stands out to me is that when we see what Jesus is doing in the sanctuary above, that should make such an impression upon my mind and heart that when I share it with you, it would leave an impression with you. And then when you share it with someone else, it leaves an impression upon them. That is what the sanctuary message is designed to do when we follow Jesus into the most holy place. But she doesn't stop there. The, the quote continues, When this grand truth, the truth of what Jesus is doing in the sanctuary, is seen and understood, those who hold it will work in harmony with Christ to prepare a people to stand in the, in the great day of God, and their efforts will be successful. Do you want to have efforts that are successful? Do you want to work with God in a way that you know will lead to true success? What this statement says is that when we understand the grand truth of what Jesus is doing for us in the sanctuary above, we will have, have, have such an impression on our hearts and minds that we will impress others and then we will work in harmony with Christ to prepare a people to stand in the great day of God, and our efforts will be successful. You know, there's lots of strategies that the church has tried. This is the strategy that will prove to be successful. So many times we come up with all these ideas of ways to grow our church and to do this and to do that when God has given us the blueprint to be successful. And the statement finishes by saying, by study, contemplation, and prayer, God's people will be elevated above common earthly thoughts and feelings and will be brought into harmony with Christ. The great work of cleansing the sanctuary above from the sins of the people. And again, that's Testimonies, Volume 5, page 575. So what we are going to do today is we are going to look at an overview of the sanctuary in the book of Revelation. And when I started studying this and seeing how harmonious and connected the sanctuary message is in the book of Revelation, it really blew my mind away. And it underscored in my mind that our understanding of the sanctuary message is not a cunningly devised fable. You know, Desmond Ford came along almost 40 years ago now and said that our understanding of the sanctuary is a mistake, and he had all these fanciful ideas to try to confuse people, when in reality, 
his arguments don't stand the test of time and they don't hold up to the testimony of inspiration. And we're going to see today just how accurate and truthful the sanctuary message is. Now, I, I suspect that most of you have a basic understanding of the sanctuary. What you may not see, though, or what you may have not seen, is just how connected and systematic the sanctuary message is in the book of Revelation. Now, we understand the basic outline of the sanctuary. And those of us who have studied the sanctuary for a while understand that there's the three apartments, so to speak. There's the outer courtyard to the sanctuary where there's the altar of sacrifice and the laver where they did the washing. And then there's the holy place where you have the table of showbread, the seven candlesticks, the altar of incense. And then you have the most holy place where you have the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat where the law of God with the two tables of stone was contained. And also there was the pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that miraculously budded. That was in the Old Testament sanctuary, which is a pattern of the heavenly sanctuary. So what we're going to see is that we can follow this very pattern in the book of Revelation. Now, how many of you have spent some time following this pattern in the book of Revelation? I'm sure many of you have, so that's good. Now, what we're going to see, as we go sequentially, you would think that you would find some texts that refer to the outer courtyard as it relates to Jesus. Now, let me say this as well. The Revelation, or the book of Revelation, the full title is not the Revelation of St. John Divine. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when we study the book of Revelation, we are going to see Jesus more completely. Now, what I hope you will see from the presentation this morning is that there is so much more to the book of Revelation than some beasts. Now, I'm going to say this as someone who is a strong believer in Adventist prophetic preaching. Sometimes I think we have done our people a disservice because the only things we preach about from Revelation are maybe Revelation 12, 13, and 14. And the only things people know is that there's two beasts in Revelation 13, the first beast that comes up out of the sea and the second beast that comes out of the earth, and the first beast is the papacy and the second beast is the United States, and we're just waiting for a Sunday law and then Jesus will come. Oh no, there is something about some three angels' messages and the 144,000. Friends, if that's all you know about the book of Revelation, you have missed the point. The book of Revelation is way more than about two beasts in Revelation 13. Now, it's important to understand those, that chapter. It's important to understand that, but there's a lot more to the book of Revelation than Revelation 13. Let's look now at this pattern in the book of Revelation, starting in the courtyard. So when we go to the courtyard, the first verses that we find that would, well, some of the first verses that we find that would make sense, if you turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Speaking of Jesus, remember this is a book about the revelation of Jesus Christ. It says, 
And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals. Now notice verse 6, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood what? A lamb, as it had been slain. Now where was the lamb slain in the sanctuary? In the courtyard. And we see again, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, speaking of Jesus, it says, The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now in John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist, speaking of Jesus, says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So here we see in the book of Revelation, the first two verses that I've shared with you, we see Jesus in the courtyard fulfilling the purpose as the antitype of the Lamb. He is the antitypical Lamb who is slain from the foundation of the world to lead to the salvation of souls. So as we come to the book of Revelation and as we see Jesus being revealed, we see that Jesus in the courtyard is a Lamb who was slain, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, interestingly, though, the book of Revelation does not spend a lot of time in the courtyard. Now, this helps us to understand a bit better our prophetic message of Seventh-day Adventists. Listen, the courtyard is absolutely essential. The holy place work and the most holy place work do not take place if Jesus is not the lamb slain in the courtyard. However, most Christians are still camped out in the courtyard or perhaps the holy place. And Seventh-day Adventists have a message that follows the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. Christians want to stay at the cross and not follow Jesus all the way. We can't stay in the courtyard. We take that cross experience with us. We don't neglect the cross. We don't say, oh, the cross is, is ABC, so we're done with that. No, we, Ellen White says that we would do well to spend a thoughtful hour each day meditating on the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes. So we don't neglect the cross, but neither do we stop there and not advance further to what inspiration shows us. So interestingly, in Revelation chapter 11, speaking of this courtyard, if you go to Revelation chapter 11, and again, we're seeing the sanctuary in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, it says, And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and them that worship therein. So the temple of God this is speaking of the sanctuary, the altar. That's the altar of incense, which is in the holy place. Those who worship therein. But verse 2 says, But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city. Unto the Gentiles and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Now, the 42 months, that's the 1260 days. You can read also about the times of the Gentiles in the book of Luke. This is the period of persecution where the church is persecuted by the papacy for the 1260 years. Interestingly, it says, leave the courtyard out. Don't measure it anymore. Jesus has moved on. He finished his work in the courtyard. And now, 
the times of the Gentiles, God's people are going to be persecuted, so the courtyard is no longer where Jesus is doing his work. He finished that work. Now we accept his sacrifice and we apply the merits of his blood from his work in the courtyard, but we keep following Jesus by faith from the courtyard to the next phase. And so that's what we are going to look at next. So, Jesus accomplished his work as our sacrifice, as the lamb slain in the courtyard, but he keeps moving forward. And remember, Revelation chapter 14, verse 4 says that the 144,000 will follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth. So the lamb starts in the courtyard, but he doesn't stop there. We, were, we are going to see now Jesus in the holy place. Now, let me say this as we start this next section. You are going to see a very systematic approach that God has laid out for us in the first 11 chapters of the book of Revelation. There are, in the first 11 chapters, the three major components are the seven churches, the seven seals, and the seven trumpets, with some interlude or introduction to lead into the trumpets and then into the seals, or excuse me, into the churches, the seals, and the trumpets. Now, I sometimes find some very interesting interpretations, especially about the trumpets. But what ends up happening is, if you lose sight of the big picture first and try to do the detail without seeing the big picture, as it relates to the sanctuary, a lot of times these interpretations veer off chorus, especially in the trumpets. Churches and seals generally are pretty good with most people, but especially the trumpets tend to veer off chorus because they lose sight of where they are in the sanctuary. But if you keep sight of where you are in the sanctuary, holy place, most holy place, you're not going to start reinterpreting trumpets into the future when those trumpets took place in the holy place. So let's see how this sets up here. Jesus in the holy place. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. Now, John is saying that he, in verse 10, that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he hears this voice like a trumpet, and he turns around to hear this voice, and the voice says, I'm Alpha and Omega, and he says, write what you've seen and send it to the seven churches. And when he turns around to see this voice that he has heard that sounds like a trumpet, in verse 12 it says, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and bang turned, I saw what? Seven golden candlesticks. Now, where are the seven golden candlesticks? In the holy place. Now, who is speaking in the midst of the seven candlesticks? Verse 13. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and a girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. And you can keep reading. This is clearly speaking of Jesus in the midst of of the seven candlesticks, and the seven candlesticks represent the seven churches, which you can see in verse 20. So the seven candlesticks, when John sees the introduction to the seven churches, 
this indicates that Jesus is where in the sanctuary? In the holy place. So we are following the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. So as we come into the seven churches, we see that Jesus is in the holy place. He is in the midst of the seven candlesticks. Now, just a brief point. If Jesus is in the midst of the candlesticks, which represent the churches, the place to find Jesus is in the church. Please don't tell me that you can walk away from your candlestick and be connected to Jesus. Jesus is in the midst of the candlesticks. And Jesus gives some pretty strong messages of rebuke. Now, Laodicea is, the not, is not the worst of the seven churches. That, that title belongs to Thyatira. They have that woman Jezebel and all of that. But Jesus does not give a message of commendation to Laodicea. But he doesn't say, get out of Laodicea before you lose your soul. He says, repent. Some people, because they see Laodicea in such a bad state, say, I'm going to get out of here. But Jesus is in the midst of the seven candlesticks. That's where you find salvation. So we're starting off in the holy place. Jesus is described as the Son of Man in the midst of the seven churches. Now, these titles that are given to Jesus are not just haphazard titles. There is a purpose, because Jesus is revealing himself in the book of Revelation. And Jesus, as the Son of Man, is described in Luke chapter 19, 10, and Matthew 18 and 11. It says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Wouldn't it make sense that Jesus would be the Son of Man seeking to bring salvation to those who are lost in the churches? So the churches are to bring salvation to the lost, and Jesus is in the midst of the churches. So that's a, a basic introduction. So we see that in the seven churches, as we come into the seven churches, they are symbolized by the seven candlesticks. And this represents the holy place. Now, you may be saying, if you've studied this, but what about Laodicea? We're going to get there, where that candlestick would be in relation to the sanctuary. Now, let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Because we're following Jesus through the sanctuary. After we get through the seven churches... We come to the introduction of the seals. And then in Revelation chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says, And I, after this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me. Now, we heard this voice of a trumpet in Revelation 1. That's the voice of Jesus talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And then you see that he sees God sitting on his throne. There's a rainbow above his throne. When you get to verse 4, it says, Round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Verse 5, And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, when in the King James it says, before the throne there were the seven lamps of fire. That means in front of or across from the throne. So the seven candlesticks were across from what article of furniture in the holy place? The table of showbread. So 
we're still in the holy place because we see the seven lamps of fire now symbolizing the seven spirits of God. They can symbolize the church. They can symbolize the Holy Spirit. And they're in front of the throne of God. And in the Old Testament sanctuary model, we have the, the table of showbread. Now, the table of showbread, how does that represent the throne of God. Now, we also see, I'll also mention, we read Revelation 5, verses 5 and 6, that Jesus is the Lamb who had been slain. So Jesus is revealing himself first as the Son of Man in, in the candlesticks for the churches, then he's the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb who was slain. So he's bringing salvation as the Son of Man, who is the Lamb that was slain. So he's the Son of Man, he's the Lamb who was slain, that's how he how he salvation. So in the holy place, he's in the midst of the churches and the candlesticks. He's also seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We see that in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Hebrews 8, verses 1 and 2. There's other places that describe Jesus seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, here's how the, the table of showbread fits with the throne of God. In the, the table of showbread, when we study this in the Old Testament model, it has two layers of crowns around the throne, representing the Father and the Son, because they are both kings. Furthermore, you have 12 loaves of bread with six stacked next to each other. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Jesus says, I and my Father are one. Scripture says Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So when you have the two stacks of bread next to each other, the right-handed loaf of bread represents Jesus because he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So when we come to the opening of the seven seals, we again find the throne of God where Jesus is at in the holy place, of the heavenly sanctuary, and we understand from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, that that throne of God had wheels of fire, and when it was time to move to the most holy place, it moved with those wheels of fire. So it's not a stationary throne. So that is the introduction to the seals. Now, isn't it interesting? Just think about this. We're studying the sanctuary. And we saw Jesus as the lamb who was slain in the courtyard. But now we're looking at the churches, the seals, and the trumpets. The seven churches, the seven seals, and the seven trumpets. And as we come to the introduction of the seven churches, Jesus is in the midst of the candlesticks, which is one of the three articles of the holy place. Then when we come to the introduction of the seals, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, which is symbolized by the table of showbread, which is the second article in the holy place. What's the third article in the holy place? The altar of incense. Now, as we go to the seven trumpets, where do you think we're going to find Jesus? The altar of incense. Isn't that amazing? It's not just a haphazard, oh, there's some churches and some seals and some trumpets. It's actually very tightly organized to be connected to the sanctuary message. So let's keep going here. Let's go to the, um, the seven um, trumpets. The holy place, the altar of incense. Go to Revelation chapter 8, verses 2 through 6. Revelation chapter 8, verses 2 through 6. 
And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. So now this is the introduction to the seven trumpets. Verse 3, And another angel came and stood where? At the altar, having a golden censer. Isn't this amazing? So you have the churches, seven candlesticks, the seals, this table of showbread, throne of God, the trumpets, the altar of incense. And there was given unto this angel much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne, and the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar, and cast it into the earth, and there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to stand. Let's talk about this angel. This angel has what in his hand? A golden censer. And what is coming out of this censer? There is incense which represents the prayers of the saints. Now, what is this angel doing at this altar? If he has a censer in his hand, and if the prayers of the saints are ascending out of the censer in his hand, what kind of work is this angel doing? He's doing the work of intercession. Who does the work of intercession? The high priest. Which is why Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says that Jesus ever liveth to make intercession for us. This angel is none other than Jesus, the high priest, doing the work of intercession. Now let me say something else to you that should fascinate you. Have you ever wondered why Jesus is described as the mighty angel in Revelation chapter 10? Because he starts off as the angel with a censer in his hand, but in Revelation chapter 10, when he comes down to finish his work of intercession through the work of the second advent movement, he is described as the mighty angel. So he's the angel at the beginning of the seven trumpets, and at the end of the seven trumpets, he is the mighty angel. So he's the angel or the intercessor. Hebrews 7.25 makes it very clear that the work of Jesus as our high priest is to ever live to make intercession for us. So remember, Jesus is revealing himself. He's here to bring salvation through the sanctuary. How, do he, how does he do that? He's the son of man in the churches who has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Not only that, he is the lamb who was slain. That's how he brings salvation to those who are lost. But not only does he bring salvation through his sacrifice, he brings salvation by ever living to make intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25. Now, this is actually just the first layer of what Jesus is doing in the sanctuary in the book of Revelation. This is just kind of the warm-up. So you ready for the next layer? Amen. I love this study because it shows that we are not following cunningly devised fables as Seventh-day Adonis. So Jesus is the Son of Man. He's the Lamb who was slain. He is the angel or intercessor. 
whoever lives to make intercession for us. So we see his work in the holy place at the beginning of the seven churches, the seven seals and the seven trumpets, in the seven candlesticks, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. You find Jesus at every article of furniture. But there's more to Jesus than just being son of man. And there's more to Jesus than being the lamb who was been slain. There's more to Jesus than being the intercessor. Go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Three more titles of Jesus that add to our understanding of what Jesus is doing in the sanctuary. Verse 5 says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. You know, sometimes we just read through those verses and say, oh, that's nice, Jesus is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, and we never stop to take time to think what that actually means. Let me tell you something, that means a lot. There is a lot more to it than just saying, oh, he's the faithful witness. Now remember, we're looking at the seven churches, the seven seals, and the seven trumpets. The, this, three, this pattern of three in the first 11 chapters. Wouldn't it be interesting if we could connect Jesus as the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth to his work in the churches, the seals, and the trumpets? Wouldn't that be interesting? Well, let me ask you something. Where else is Jesus described as the faithful witness in the book of Revelation? Go to Revelation 3.14 where it says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus is the faithful and true witness to the Laodicean church. He is the faithful witness to all the churches because he is giving them a testimony of their condition, all seven churches. But he is especially the faithful witness to the last church. And as the first begotten of the dead... It's interesting, when you look at the seals, they need the hope of the resurrection. And when you look at the seven trumpets, you see that Jesus is coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords. We're going to look at this. But here's the amazing thing. Let's, let's see how these three titles connect to the work of Jesus. Remember that Jesus is the Son of Man in the seven churches, but he's also the faithful witness to the Laodicean church especially. He is especially the faithful witness to the seventh church. And when you study prophecy, here's what you see. And this is just a warm-up for what I'm going to do tomorrow. And then, so tomorrow we're going to do the Laodicean message as it relates to the seven churches. Then Wednesday we're going to do the message to, uh, of the seven seals, especially as it relates to the sealing of the 144,000. And then Thursday we're going to do the message of the seven trumpets, especially as it relates to the rise of the second advent movement. And then Friday, we'll finish up with the three angels' messages as it relates to the work of Jesus as the third angel. But what we see here, just as a, as a brief preview to what we're going to do tomorrow, is that Jesus is especially the faithful witness to the seventh church. And the seventh church is the Laodicean church. And the word Laodicea means a judged people. 
which means it's the Church of the Judgment Hour, which began in 1844, which means that the seventh candlestick is actually in the most holy place. The first six are in the holy place. Now, you have to have some spiritual understanding there because they didn't break it off. You know, you can get all technical, but the point is this. Laodicea takes place in the most holy place. And Jesus is especially the faithful witness to the church of the judgment hour. Now, let me ask you something. What does a witness do? A witness gives testimony in court. So Jesus is giving testimony in court about his judgment hour church. Now, if you want to know what his testimony is, yes, read Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22. But have you ever heard of the testimony of Jesus? Which is the spirit of prophecy. So Jesus is the faithful and true witness to the Laodicean church, and he bends over backwards by giving us the testimony of Jesus, which is his witness about his last day church in court. And many Seventh-day Adventists say, we don't want this testimony. I'm going to burn those books. And as the book of Luke says in the parable, we will not have this man reign over us. He can be our, our Savior, but not our Lord. We don't want the testimony of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, if you want to know your true condition, you will listen to my testimony about who you are. And so that is the message of Jesus to his, his judgment hour church. So here's the thing. Jesus is the faithful witness. He's the first begotten of the dead. He is the prince of the kings of the earth. Remember, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is the son of man that brings salvation to the churches. And he especially brings salvation to his last day church when we as the Laodicean people heed the account of the faithful and true witness. Let me tell you something, and I'll say this again tomorrow, but if you think that the Laodicean message doesn't apply to you, it's because it does. I haven't yet met, well, I shouldn't say that, but I've met very few Seventh-day Adventists who believe that the message of the faithful and true witness applies to them. And if you're going to be ready for Jesus to come, you better apply that message to your life because it does apply to you, guaranteed. That's what Jesus says about who you are. Now, continuing on, we have just a few minutes left here. Jesus is not only the Son of Man and the faithful witness, he is also the Lamb who had been slain in the seven seals, but he is also the first begotten of the dead. Now that is good news because when you study the seals, you'll see that this describes the persecuted church. You have the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, and the pale horse, and you see the church being persecuted, and by the time you get to the fifth seal, you have the souls crying out under the altar, how long, O Lord, till you judge and avenge our blood. And there is a need for a resurrection of God's faithful people. The fact that Jesus is the first begotten of the dead shows that, yes, he was slain, but he didn't slay, stay in the grave. He was resurrected as the first begotten of the dead. Now, seven trumpets. He starts off in Revelation 8 as the angel with a censer in his hand doing a work of intercession. But he is also described as the prince of the kings of the earth. 
And in Revelation 11, chapter 15, it says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So Jesus is the prince of the kings of the earth. He is coming back as king of kings and lord of lords when he finishes his work of intercession. Let's look at what we have here. Jesus in the most holy place. So we see that we're following the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. We saw that he was in the courtyard, but the book of Revelation says, rise and measure not the temple, or the courtyard, leave it out. We're going to follow Jesus into the holy place. We see Jesus in the holy place at the beginning of the seven churches, the seven seals, and the seven trumpets. But as we come to the end of the seven churches, the seven seals, and the seven trumpets, Jesus transitions into the most holy place. And he has the title of faithful witness, first begotten of the dead, prince of the kings of the earth. He is the faithful witness, especially to the seventh church. He is the first begotten of the dead because the righteous will be resurrected when Jesus finishes his work in the most holy place. And when the 144,000 are sealed. So Jesus is the first begotten of the dead in the seven seals. When the 144,000 are sealed, which is when Jesus' work will be finished during the seven seals, then the first begotten of the dead will resurrect those who have died in the Lord. And then the seventh trumpet, we see that Jesus is the prince of the kings of the earth. But notably, in Revelation chapter 10, verse 7, you probably know this verse, Speaking of the work of Jesus, it says, Revelation 10, 7, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. You know the mystery of God, Revelation 10, 7, is Christ, excuse me, Colossians 1, 27, the mystery of God is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the work of soul cleansing that Christ is doing in the second advent movement. So here we see the work of Jesus in the most holy place. He is especially the faithful and true witness in the most holy place to the seventh church. He's the first begotten of the dead, and that message applies to his work in the most holy place because when the 144,000 are sealed at the end of the six and seven seals, then the righteous dead will be resurrected. And then in the seventh trumpet, when Christ in you, the hope of glory, is completed, the mystery of God is finished, then Jesus will come back as the prince of the kings of the earth, or as king of kings and lord of lords. That's pretty amazing to me, I think. Now, let me just show you a few statements from Ellen White as it relates to the churches, the seals, and the trumpets. The Laodicean message, and this is a preview for tomorrow, so I'm just giving you some highlights. Those who come up to every point and stand every test and overcome be the price what it may, have heeded the counsel of the true witness, and they will receive the latter rain and thus be fitted for translation. Did you realize that if you follow the message of Revelation 3, 14 to 22, you will be fitted for translation? 
That's a translation message coming up to every point, standing every test and overcoming be the price for what it may. Sometimes when I hear certain people speak, it makes it sound as if Adventists are going to stay Laodicean and lukewarm until Jesus comes, and that will just keep sinning until Jesus comes, and he'll just have to cover us with his righteousness as we proclaim his faithfulness because we're still sinning, and we're just thankful that he's faithful to save us. Yet scripture says that God's last day church will overcome as Jesus overcame. When Laodicea allows Jesus to come in, he will cleanse his church of sin. Cleansing in the seals. Not one of us, this is Testimonies, Volume 5, page 214, not one of us will ever receive the seal of God while our characters have one spot or stain upon them. It is left with us to remedy the defects in our characters, to cleanse the soul temple of every defilement. Then the latter rain will fall upon us as the early rain fell upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost. There you see the latter rain again. So there was the latter rain in translation in the message to the churches, and in the seals there's the latter rain and the cleansing of the soul temple of every defilement. Maranatha, page 200. Um, we see that the seal of God is a settling into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, so that they cannot be moved. You know, this is something we struggle with as Adventists sometimes. Sometimes we settle into the truth intellectually, and we know all the right things, but we're not very nice about it. And I'm talking to myself, because I've done that. But if, you're, if you know every detail of our faith, theology, health message, you name it, but you're not nice about it, you haven't settled into the truth spiritually. Because when we settle into the truth spiritually, we become like Jesus, and you have the fruits of the Spirit in your life. And then cleansing on the trumpets. I'm basically almost done here. Review and Herald, April 21, 1891. The latter rain is to fall upon the people of God. A mighty angel is to come down from heaven, and the whole earth is to be lighted with his glory. That's Revelation 18. Are we ready to take part in the glorious work of the third angel? Are our vessels ready to receive the heavenly dew? Have we defilement and sin in the heart? If so, let us cleanse the soul temple and prepare for the showers of the latter rain. The refreshing from the presence of the Lord will never come to hearts filled with impurity. May God help us to die to self that Christ the hope of glory may be formed within. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the work that is going to be finished in the Second Advent movement, the mystery of God, cleansing of the soul temple. So here we see, big picture, just real briefly, you see the churches, the seals and the trumpets. Jesus comes in in the churches. We overcome as he overcame because we heed the counsel of the faithful and true witness. In the seals, we settle into the truth intellectually and spiritually so that we cannot be moved. Jesus writes his law into our hearts and minds. We receive the seal of the living God and the seven trumpets, Christ in you, the hope of glory, the mystery of God is finished. And then that concludes with the three angels' message. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. That's kind of a big picture of the first 11 chapters and so forth. Let me just finish with one last slide. Maranatha 249. I'm just going to read the bolded portion. There must be a purifying of the soul here upon the earth in harmony with Christ's cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven. Let me say it to you this way. The revelation of Jesus Christ is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus reveals himself. 
He reveals himself in the churches, in the seals and the trumpets. He is the Son of Man, who is also the faithful witness. And in the seals, he is the Lamb who had been slain, who is also the first begotten of the dead. And in the trumpets, he is the intercessor, who is also the prince of the kings of the earth. But here's what Jesus is doing. He is bringing everything to a climax, so that when he finishes his work in the most holy place, listen to this. When he finishes his work in the most holy place, that work that he is doing right now is designed to cleanse his second advent movement people from sin. When he finishes that work and he comes in because we overcame as he overcame and he puts his seal on our foreheads and the mystery of God is finished so that Christ in you, the hope of glory, is a reality in your life, the revelation of Jesus Christ is now not just Jesus, but it is in the lives of the second advent movement. And when he has that people, then Revelation 18.1 takes place where an angel comes down from heaven having great power. The earth is lightened with his glory because the, the second advent movement is a reproduction, not just a reflection, but a reproduction of the character of Jesus. And we're going to see now through the rest of the week how the right arm ties into that prophetic message. But the book of Revelation is about the revelation of Jesus Christ and of how God has designed for the second advent movement to be that revelation. And then when you get to Revelation 12, you have the great controversy where the devil says, you want to bet? You're not going to have that people that reflect you. And Revelation 13 shows his last-ditch effort to have the United States create a Sunday law to try to get all the world to wonder after the first beast whose deadly wound is healed so that we won't have the character of Jesus that will follow the Antichrist rather than the true Christ. But Revelation 14 shows us God's game plan to overcome the strategy of Satan, and, that, and that's through the three angels' messages. So that's where we're headed this week. God has a message for us as a people, and the health message is closely connected to that, and we're going to see that as we go through the rest of this week. So I hope that you learned something from this presentation, and I hope that you have a deeper understanding of just how tight our prophetic message is. We're not following cunningly devised fables. This isn't just a, an excuse to make up for the disappointment of 1844. This is the truth as surely as God is living. Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, thank you that you have entrusted us with a special truth for this time. Forgive us, Lord, for being Laodicean when you designed us to be the remnant people who reflect the character of Jesus. May we humble ourselves and allow you to come in so that we can stand on Mount Zion with the Lamb someday very soon. Thank you for your love and mercy to each one of us, and may we be faithful to you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.